Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm trying new things with the microphone uh, to try not to pick up the radio station. It sounded like I was trying to get there a minute ago. I've got it sitting out on the little platform here, but I'm afraid if I move, it's going to mess everything up, and it, I feel like I'm going to have to stand like this. And that's, uh, that's not like me, but I'll try. We are studying the book of Romans, working through it passage by passage, uh, taking whatever Paul had for the church of Rome and trying to see what God was revealing, not just for Rome, but for us. That we could see this message of the Gospel that was good news to them and is good news to us. And we saw last week that at the center of this message was a righteousness that was revealed in the Gospel, the righteousness of God that comes by faith as a gift. Now, for us to understand why that's important, you'll notice that the first word of verse 18 is for. The righteousness that you need to hear about is because of what comes next. And it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it. But from one eighteen through the middle of chapter 3, Paul's going to make a case for why you and every human being who has ever lived needs a righteousness apart from works and apart from law, a righteousness that comes by faith. And it's a powerful case. It is because we are all under the guilt and power of sin. Before we read God's Word, let's pray together that God might bless His Word and that He might instruct us. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we ask for Your blessing on the reading and study of Your Word this morning, that You would nourish and cause Your people to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that You would fill our souls with Him, that You would help us who feel like we're okay to see our need, and You would help those who feel their need to see that it is met in the Lord Jesus. I pray that You would take Your Word and cause Your church to thrive and flourish in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, verse 18. This is God's Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
and to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's Word. It's completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. There's a Christian man who had an unbelieving friend. And they were good friends, friends enough that they could have lots of conversations. They talked about spiritual things whenever the Christian man could get the opportunity to do so. He would often invite his friend to church, though the unbelieving man often said no, actually always said no, did not want to come. But one time he surprised him and said, okay, I'll come this Sunday. Well, this believer was beginning to pray on Monday and he, he sort of found himself praying far more often than he usually did. It was a great thing for his soul as he prayed for his friend over and over and over again all through the week waiting for him to get to church on that Sunday morning. And they met and went together to church and they came in and he was very excited that his friend would be there to hear the Gospel in the context of worship. And he flipped open the bulletin to see what that lesson would be. And it was Genesis 5, the genealogy of Adam. And he was stunned. Now, he got distracted by the early parts of worship, the songs and things. But when the pastor opened up to Genesis 5, sure enough, that's what he read, the whole chapter, which is a genealogy basically from start to finish. Over and over again, he said, and so-and-so, some archaic name that nobody had ever heard, lived and he had a son, lived some more and then he died. And then his son had a son, and he lived some and then he died. And it repeated so long that the, the, this believing man was so frustrated that his unbelieving friend was there for that day. He could not believe it. He began to get angry. Angry at the pastor. Angry at God. How could you do this? How could you bring him here on this day? Why of all the days would you bring him here? And and he he just kept going over those questions in his head. And he began to get angry and angry, clenching his fist. He began to tremble in worship. He almost thought he should get up and leave. But he thought, how would that look? And he was torn between what he should do and he looked over at his friend, the unbeliever, who was weeping. He asked him about it. He said, what is it? He said, and he died. And he died. We're dying. And this unbeliever had come to see that he was liable before God and needed help. Genesis 5. The Gospel for the unbelieving. It's, it's, It's one of those moments where you go, okay, That's brilliant. But it's also that this unbeliever got the point of Genesis 5. That the wrath of God against sin is being revealed all over the world. We could look at stuff like hurricanes and earthquakes perhaps and see how much destruction they wreak. And we could say, see, God has taken the world and He's caused it to reflect our condition. His wrath is on display but we see it in our own souls as well, that we are guilty and, and shamed and dying. 
we see the wrath of God. It is evident to us all. And of course, that's precisely the point that Paul makes. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's becoming clear. Now, what I want to do is to show you that it's all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, but it's going to take me a few weeks. Today's passage deals with one particular kind of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And it is what we might call the immoral pagan. The, the guiding principle in the person's life that Paul's talking about in Romans 1 is the person who asked this question, what feels good? And they live their life by, that, by the answers to those questions. What feels good? I'll do that. It's the guiding principle of life. And Paul shows what happens when someone asks that question. Now, at its heart, the wrath of God is not addressed at that question. It's not wrong to feel good or to enjoy things that feel good. That's not wrong. What is wrong, listen very carefully, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Ungodliness is a life lived apart from God. It is a life that is without God. That's the point of the word. And so God is saying, my wrath is coming on those who live a life of determination apart from me. And then unrighteousness. Unrighteousness sounds like for us a, a term of did a person get his life right or not? Did he live well? Did he do the things he was supposed to do? But really, righteousness and unrighteousness are relational terms. Is a person in relationship to God rightly or is he not in a relationship to God rightly? That is what righteousness at its heart is. And so, God's wrath is, is appearing on all the earth against those who are determined to live apart from God and against those who refuse to re-enter into a relationship rightly with God. That's the point. Now, if that is our determination, we're in a lot of trouble. If we're determined to live a life apart from God, we've got a huge problem because Paul says, you, and along with every human being, you know that God is there and that you are liable to Him. Look at what Paul says. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. They are without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, Paul makes the case that every human being from the beginning of time has known enough about God to respond to Him in some way, and yet they do not. That they are guilty not because they were in ignorance and they failed to respond to what they knew, but they knew and they failed to respond. Now, you're going to find at least a lot of people today who take issue with Paul here. There are a number of atheists who say there's just not enough evidence to prove there's God. There's a lot of agnostics who say the problem is God didn't leave us enough evidence. Well, since about 1200 A.D., Thomas Aquinas has gone through five proofs for the existence of God strictly using nature. Now, plenty of people have tried to argue with that. But the arguments are always 
deep and complex and convoluted. And, and the arguments that Thomas Aquinas began have become more sophisticated. There's plenty of reasons to believe that God is there. But I think even better than the fact that, you know, there's some need to see design in the world and there's need to have a cause and effect relationship and all the things that Thomas Aquinas said. You can go back and read them if you'd like. You'll find them on Wikipedia. They're pretty good there. Is the idea that in our hearts, God has preloaded a knowledge about Him. Ecclesiastes says it this way, God has set eternity in our hearts. Uh, Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician and philosopher, uh, said it this way, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the, in the human heart. We feel our need for God, but we're determined to live apart from Him. You see the problem. If you look across all human cultures, every single human culture, across time and across geography, every single human culture, there's never been one that was predominantly atheistic. There's something built in our hearts that says we need God. Now, Sigmund Freud came along and said, ah, the reason for that is is we need something to help us personalize nature that makes us afraid. So we create something that we can control and manage. Well, that's interesting because the God of the Bible is not very controllable and He's certainly not manageable. In fact, R.C. Sproul points out that when he was in the boat with the disciples sleeping in the storm, they were panicking for their lives. And he came up and he calmed the storm. And instead of calming their fears, they were more afraid, not of the storm, but of him. It doesn't make sense to make this God up. Not the God of the Bible. And so we have plenty of reasons to think that God is there. But here's the problem. If we want to live apart from God, we have to somehow find a way to hide and ignore and cover up that truth. And that's what Paul says we do. In verse 18 he says that men who are unrighteous, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We take what we know about God and we say that's in the way of the way I want to live apart from Him. And so I've got to hide it. I've got to cover it. I've got to ignore it. I have to reject it and I press it down so that I can continue to live my life the way I want to. I want you to hear uh, an atheist say that very thing. There's a fellow named Algis Huxley who uh, in the 60s was sort of a leading proponent of existentialism, a philosophy that said there's no authentic meaning in the world. You have to just create your own, do what you want, because there's nothing else except that. That was his basic philosophy. And he was drawing on other philosophers like Nietzsche and Albert Camus. And and he was a, a great writer and an important philosopher. In an article called Confessions of a Professed Atheist, I want you to hear Aldous Huxley talk about the days when he came to the conclusions that life was meaningless. Days in college with his friends, and together they, they thought philosophy and talked, and they came to this conclusion. There's no real meaning to the world. Listen to what he says. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently assumed it had none, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. 
For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Did, did you hear what he said? He said, I, I'm, going to make the, I'm, I'm going to come with a philosophy of, the, of meaninglessness in the world because if God is there, I can't do what I want with my body. If God is there, He has a right to tell me how to use my body and I don't want any part of that, so I'm going to construct a meaningless system. And He worked very hard the rest of His life to maintain that meaninglessness so that He could be free with His own body. Do you hear it? We have a reason to suppress the truth, to hide and to ignore what we know about God to look at the wrath of God being revealed, to sense it in our hearts, and to ignore it. Because if we give in to it, we're going to have to look for help. And if we look for help, we're going to have to come to God in His terms. And if we come to God in His terms, we have to bow our knee and submit to Him and obey Him. And we don't want any part of that. That's Paul's point. He says that Although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, the first thing that happens when we refuse to acknowledge God is we have to create a darkened system, a mind that will not look at all the the data, a mind that will be selective and and cover up and hide. We have to create a darkened system that's the giving us room to be free from God. And the effect of that darkened mind is that it affects our hearts. Their foolish hearts were darkened too. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, when we use the word fool, we often mean something like a person who's unintelligent, a person who's unthinking. Now let me tell you, that is not the case for many of the atheists and agnostics. It's not that they are unthinking people. They are intelligent, in some cases, brilliant and genius men and women who have come to this conclusion. But the point the Bible makes about foolishness is not that it's a category of intelligence, it's a category of morality. The writer of Psalms says, the, the, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. You see, that's the first principle of the fool. There is no God. I can live how I want. And so autonomy and freedom from God's rule over me is the goal that I'm protecting. And so it's a moral reason that makes me say there is no God, not an intelligence reason. That's what Paul is saying, that we are committed to our freedom from God, so we'll say there is no God. So it's not that there's a lack of education or if we could just find the right way to say something, or if we could find a really strong argument, it will never work. The only thing that can fix a moral problem is a change in the heart altogether. He says, when our hearts get darkened, when we try to say, I don't want any part with God, what we're going to do next is worship not God, 
It's not that we're going to become people who say, oh good, I've gotten rid of God, I don't have to worship anything. It turns out we'll worship everything. Because they exchanged the truth, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Or back to verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He watched people who said no to God begin to worship everything else. And, and don't you know that's true in us too? That the, at the moment we begin to stop worshiping God, something else rushes into that empty space. Something is going to guide you. Something's going to be the orienting principle of your life. The Bible says make it God. God is the one sensible place for you to orient your life. But we oriented about work. I have to work. Work is who I am. It defines me. I oriented about family. A good thing. My family is who I am. It defines me. It's everything to me. And it becomes the, the pinnacle place and it replaces God. My reputation, money, possessions, pleasure. It could be anything. And probably for most of us it changes on a, a daily or even hourly basis. We put something else at the top. And it's not strong enough to hold our lives together. So we keep swapping it for something else. We become foolish in our hearts. Futile in our thinking. Hoping for the next thing to be enough. Now, you see the condition of our hearts. We say no to God and everything rushes in and takes over and controls. And then God sees that rejection of Him and issues a judgment, His wrath upon that. And His wrath is this, verse 24, therefore God gave them up. You know, this is probably the harshest thing that God could do, is to just let go. You know how I can prove this to you? I want you just to think for a second. Think about every prayer request you've ever made. What if God had said yes to them all? What if God had given you everything you've ever asked for? I'll tell you what would have happened in my life. It would be a train wreck. It would be ruined and a mess. And I will bet you would find that's true of your life too. You know, here's what God does as an act of judgment. He says to these people, you want a God like the, the snake? You want a God like the creeping things? You want a God like these mortal men? Very well, have them. And He lets them go. He lets them go into that. And when He lets go, sin is like this ravenous monster that the, the chain is released a little bit. The leash is let longer. And it chews up its victims. The first thing you see is they pervert their bodies. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. You see, God lets them go and the first thing they do is they begin to take other people and make them into objects for their own gratification. That is what Paul says is happening in these homosexual activities. It's taking the way God designed the world and saying, no, I'm going to do it my way, whatever way gets me the most pleasure. 
I'm going to take it and do it however I want to, and it's all about me. And you see, even this person whom, with whom they are finding pleasure is there just for them to get their own pleasure. You see, that, that person becomes for them a toy. Kind of like the things we buy for our entertainment, like a, a jet ski. You know, I buy a jet ski so that I can go and have a good time and, and say this is fun and it's there to give me pleasure. Well, see, what happens is if, if God lets me go and I begin worshiping these created things, I start looking at other people and I say, you are here for my pleasure. And you see it in this homosexual activity that he's describing here. Here's someone who looks at their neighbor and takes something God designed to be beautiful and good, the sexual relationship for a husband and wife, designed to bond them together, to be a way for them to show and express their love for one another in powerful ways. And instead, they say, no, this is all about me. What can I get? And they turn a person into a sea You're just here to give me pleasure. And when you stop, I'll find someone else. And so people become objects. That's the first thing that happens when God lets us go. Is we look at other people and they're just objects. They've lost their humanity to us. They're just here for me. Now... C.S. Lewis says, there's a progression here. This isn't the worst of them all, it gets worse. Listen to what he says. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all the sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred, for there are two things inside me competing with the human self with, with, with which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course it's better to be neither. Look in the Gospels. Who is it that comes to Jesus? The one who is has mastered their bodies and is basically feeling pretty good about themselves? The Pharisees? Or is it the ones who are sexually broken? The sexually broken ones are the ones who come to Jesus and say, help. You see, the point of Jesus letting you go into this kind of depravity is that you would waken to the pain that it caused and that you would see the wrath of God and run from it to help. But if we harden our hearts in that depravity, look what he says next. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, the diabolical self, as C.S. Lewis calls it. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, or greed. It brings economic disorder, malice, uh, they are full of envy, murder, and strife, social disorder. Deceit, uh, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, insolent and arrogant and boastful. We, we see in these economic disorders, social disorder, they disobey parents, family breakdown. We see relational breakdown as people slander and, and hold grudges against each other. And finally, they 
their character breaks down. Verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Everything disintegrates. Everything breaks down. Interior, exterior, in the family, in society, in the economy, it all falls apart because God says, you want to worship those other things. Okay. And He lets them go. You know, I don't know for sure what hell is going to be like. It could be that God for eternity is raining down actively His wrath against the sins they committed. But even if that weren't true, hell would be bad enough just because God lets sinners go where they want to go. Which is into utter ruin. When God said in the garden, if you sin against me, you will die. He was just telling them what would happen. And sin, like a monster, comes and it devours everything that it can get. And the only hope for sin to be broken in their lives, the only hope for sin to be broken in your life, is that God does not let go of you. It's that God holds that sin at bay. It's that God gives you a righteousness that you could not earn. The only way to break the power and the slavery of sin is to have someone who will come and destroy the Master, who will win the war for you, who will declare an emancipation of slaves and then enforce it. And when Jesus came and He said this, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. He is telling you that there is no one who can help you out of this. This is our life. This is our heart. And the only escape from it is if Jesus sets you free. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing on us not that we could earn it, but because we need Jesus. We need Your blessing. And if You do not restrain from sin, we pray, keep us from evil because we can't do it. We are powerless. And if You were to let us go, this is the path we would follow into utter ruin. Do not let us go. Grant us faith that we could rest in Your hands and that You would keep us from evil and from sin that You would clothe us in a righteousness that we did not earn, but as a gift from You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.